That's where we are, Luke chapter 16. Um, today we'll be starting in verse 19 and going through the end of the chapter. Now, as you find your way uh, this morning, uh, I want to share with you one of my favorite news stories from this last year. Don't get your hopes up, this is not uh, incredibly moving or serious. It's me, after all. Um, but I saw this, uh, this on various news outlets, uh, and, and I saw this article uh, specifically on CNN. I just I want to read it because I can't phrase it much better than this. Uh, bad weather, crowded skies, military drills, and now coin tossing added, are added to the list of growing reasons for China's notorious flight delays. Police took away an 80-year-old woman Tuesday after fellow passengers reported that she was throwing coins at the plane during boarding of China Southern Airlines flight on the tarmac of Shanghai's Pudong International Airport. The passenger, surnamed Qiu, who has no prior criminal record or mental health issues, claims she tossed coins as a prayer for a safe flight, Shanghai police said in a statement. It added that officers found nine coins at the scene. I imagine this was very substantial evidence including one that fell into the engine of the Airbus A320 aircraft with others scattered nearby. The airline had to clear all 150 passengers aboard uh, for the full flight, uh, originally scheduled to depart at 12.40 p.m. To ensure flight safety, China Southern's aircraft maintenance staff conducted a thorough investigation of the engine, which concluded at 4.53 p.m. and cleared the aircraft for takeoff. The flight eventually took off at 6.16 p.m. and arrived at its destination more than five hours late. A police photo, it was there in the article, shows the value of the coins adds up to 1.71, about 25 U.S. cents. But the local media estimated the cost of the engine inspection and flight delay could run easily into thousands of dollars. Police said the case will be investigated further. Can you imagine this? I'm imagining like being on the plane, we all know about my fear of flying, I'm sitting there in the window seat and all of a sudden this lady, like this is a small airport so it's where you just walk across the tarmac and go up the stairs um, and uh, this lady goes out of line very slowly, she's 80 years old, I imagine she has a cane, just make it more fun in your mind, and, and before the Chinese TSA can get to her, she begins throwing coins at the plane and she must have gotten really close because if you're up close to a, a, a jumbo jet, the, the engines just aren't on the ground, they're up in the air. So imagine this long line of passengers and this lady begins throwing coins at the plane. As you can imagine, TSA sprints over, now assuming that this grandma is a terrorist and arrests her. She innocently says, what, what, what's going on? I'm just trying to bless the plane. As they question her, myself and 148 other passengers are now filing off the plane frustrated. But what are they supposed to do? Says the police were going to investigate the case further. Were they going like, to see if those coins were laced with something? Are they going to see that whether she was actually a nefarious old lady that was planning something? Do you think that she was actually going to be a terrorist? There's no way. She was just trying to bless the plane. To me, this story perfectly captures the saying, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. She had no idea what she was doing. She just thought, you know what, I know something I can do nice for all these other passengers that are nervous about flying. I will just bless the plane, right? Like, 
throwing coins at the engine. She was completely ignorant. She had no idea what she was doing right up until the moment that TSA grabs her. She didn't know ignorance is bliss. Now, as ridiculous as this story is and entertaining, uh, I think we sometimes try to be like this lady. We are sometimes very careful to remain ignorant. We stay ignorant so we can stay blissful. We don't try to know because then we would have to care, be aware, and deal with the consequences of that. Right? Think of what's happening in our nation. If I don't turn on the news, if I don't click those posts, if I don't become aware of what is happening all across our country, and primarily in Charlottesville, I don't have to care. And my life will continue to be blitzed. If I remain ignorant to the continued segregation and discrimination that happens throughout our city, Chicago, I'll be able to drive blissfully to work, not noticing the underserved neighborhoods that we're driving through. If I post-church, go downstairs and keep my conversations light and at surface level, I, I won't have to get deep into someone else's life and care for them. Ignorance is bliss. But the reality is ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is a choice. We are not clueless. The world around us feeds us too much information for us to truly be ignorant. And so we choose to be ignorant. And the problem comes then when our chosen ignorance meets God's Word, the Bible. Because in the Bible, ignorance is not bliss. If you're here this morning and you believe uh, that this book is the Word of God, then we don't get a pass as we try to claim ignorance. We suffer the consequences of that choice. And so today as we continue this series on the parables, we're going to see Jesus tell a story that illustrates the consequence of choosing ignorance. And Jesus is going to use a topic that all ages, people of all cultures, people of all time periods have chosen ignorance. Money. Now I know you may be thinking, hold up, I'm pretty sure Pastor Kerry had an application point about money last week. This is not fair, I can only handle about once a quarter of us talking about money in church. I'm just the messenger. God's word was started, I did not make it. You'll have to take it up with God in the Bible. Because when we look at this parable before us, Jesus brings this topic up too clearly for us not to address it this morning. So now that we all know, and I want us to all know what is coming for the rest of the time, we are going to examine the parable of a man who chose ignorance. And from that, we are going to learn, first, how to be rich in this life, and second, how to be rich in eternity. So look at Luke chapter 16, verse 19, because right there it throws us into the parable. And as a bit of background, the topic of money is coming up because if you look back to verse 14 uh, in verse chapter 16, it says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. These religious leaders loved money. And as has been said throughout this series, Jesus told the parables so that he could shed light on the realities of life and open the door for self-examination. So we too, as we meet these two characters before us this morning, we should realize and find ourselves also saying, this parable sheds life on our lives. That we might examine ourselves just like the Pharisees were asked to. Jesus' story begins with two characters. The first is a rich man. 
Even from seeing him, we know he is rich. He is dressed in purple, a sign of luxury as this was the most expensive cloth to produce and to own. Were this a remake into modern day, we know that he would be wearing the best, the perfectly tailored Versace suit, tailored to make his body look perfect. His shoes are shiny and new, no sign of a scuff. Uh, Chances are he was only going to wear them two or three times before getting rid of them. When speaking about the man wearing fine linen, Jesus is painting the picture for us that this man is so rich that even his underwear is name brand. His underwear costs more than probably all of our outfits today combined. As we see this man, we realize that he not doesn't only dress the part, but he lives it. Inside, as you can imagine, his house of marble, his servants bring him a feast for every meal. There is no day when there isn't an abundance of food. Every night he lounges at the table. He carelessly lets scraps of food fall to the floor. I imagine his royally bred house dogs can taste the difference between the really good caviar and the just okay caviar. This man is Roman. Each day I imagine he gets into his Rolls Royce. His driver drives him down his long driveway as his gatekeeper lets him out of the mansion. And we can imagine that every day as he left through the gate, he discreetly glanced to his right to see if he was still there. The poor beggar that was sitting outside the gate and had been for years. And as Jesus introduces the second character, he gives us a detail that is unique to this parable. He gives a name, Lazarus. Usually in the parables, Jesus does not give names so that we can identify with the characters as types of people. But here, Jesus gives a name. Lazarus. Were we the Pharisees listening to Jesus tell this story for the first time, the first purpose in this given name would have been immediately clear. His name translated means God helps. It signifies one who cannot help themselves and instead is dependent upon God. His helplessness probably began as he was a cripple. He was unable to move on his own. He at some point was placed by some caring person at this gate to beg, hoping that in his inability to work and move that he could receive enough to survive. He knew, this man Lazarus knew that the servants of this rich man might even be able to give him those scraps that were left over from even the dogs. Over time, as he sat outside the rich man's gate, it became his home. We imagine were it today a piece of cardboard or a blanket underneath him. So old and dusty it matches the ground below it. He has one blanket that awaits his sleep at night. One bull sits in front of him hoping that he can maybe get some of those scraps. Unable to move, Lazarus himself has not bathed in a year. The stench attracts bugs whose bites leave welts on his exposed arms and legs. Some go away while others he itches until they become open, infected sores. Stray dogs drawn in by the stench would come and sniff him. Unable to shoo them away, unable to move, they would lick his open sores with their coarse, dry tongues, perpetuating their infection and the smell that went along with it. The divide between these two men is clear. Jesus had spared no detail in in displaying the contrast between the rich man's extravagant life and the poor man. But Jesus now declares that both men died. 
revealing that the lesson to be learned here in this parable comes not in their lives, but in their deaths. Lazarus, verse 22 says, is carried up to Abraham's side by the angels, while the rich man dies and is buried, and he finds himself in Hades. The care that Lazarus receives from the angels foreshadows the change that is about to take place. Now as we open into this second scene, it would be tempting for us to try to read into every word in detail that is there. It is often the temptation of Bible scholars to try to take these verses and dissect and and paint a picture of what we are going to experience after death. But we're not going to do that today. Primarily because that is not Jesus' point here. The language that he uses is very purposeful. But it is purposeful to build a clear picture for his chosen Jewish audience at that time so he can get them to see what he wants them to see. And what he wants them to see is what we also need to see this morning. Lazarus, a poor man, alone, uh, ridden with sores, licked by wild stray dogs and begging for the scraps under the table is now united with Abraham. The very pinnacle of righteousness, the patriarch of the Christian faith, when when they mention, when Jesus mentions that this man, Lazarus, is now with Abraham, it is so clear to the Jewish leaders. He is with the guy that you would want to meet in heaven. From the lowest of lows to being united with Abraham. But while his reversal is shocking, on the other side, the change is even greater. The rich man is almost unrecognizable. His wealth is gone. No suit, no fancy underwear. He's got nothing for himself now. There's nothing about him that would make him stand out. All that he had in life serves no purpose now in death. It is a solemn image that we do well not to miss. All that we have in this life, all that brings us our temporary satisfaction, temporary pleasure, temporary status, has no weight when it comes to eternity. None of what we own now is currency that will bring us wealth and death. And so we see the rich man instead sitting, searching desperately for an end to his torment. His tongue is dry, longing for something to quench his thirst. In his desperation, Jesus says, he looks up and sees Abraham far off with Lazarus by his side. Father Abraham, he cries out, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. And just in case we are not clued in yet to Jesus' clear reversal of status as Lazarus is now being begged to help the rich man, Jesus says that Abraham replies, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted and you are in anguish. What we can't miss here is what is temporary and what is permanent. Abraham says that in life the rich man received good and Lazarus bad and both were temporal, both were only for a time. But now, Abraham says, Lazarus is comforted and you are in anguish, you are in torment. These are their fixed existences. Lazarus is now in death being permanently comforted while the rich man is permanently in torment. This is 
so important because it speaks to the urgency with which we are called to be stewards of what we have now. Because in light of our permanent status after death, we only have a small amount of time. Life prior to death is the only time we have to use what God has given us. And it is here that we return to ignorance. Because we see in this conversation that, that the rich man cries out, Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. He knew who he was. He knew every day that he went out his gate that Lazarus was sitting there. The first purpose in Jesus using Lazarus' name was to foreshadow its meaning. But the second more potently illustrates that the rich man was not ignorant. But he instead chose to be. Every day he saw Lazarus, he knew that he could have made a difference in his life. Even the scraps from his table that instead were going to his overfed dog could have changed this man's life. He saw the need. And he knew he possessed the wealth to make a difference and he chose to ignore it. And it's through this negative example that we see how to be rich in this life. Each one of us has been given much. We live in a wealthy nation. We live in a place where our quality of life, even uh, for the, the poorest of us, is so much better than much of the rest of the world. Many of us have no problem affording even a used and old car or saving up for something that we want. Not need. Want. You're rich. So it is here that we have to make clear what Jesus is trying to expose. Being rich is not the issue. Being selfish is the issue. Not being generous with what God has given us is the issue. I love one quote that I came across as I was studying this week. It says this, The rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. The rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. And this gets at how we can this morning talk about wealth and generosity in connection with eternity and life after death. How we steward our wealth is a reflection of our heart. How we manage our money and all that God has given us points to where our heart is. We will not be condemned for having money. We will not be condemned for, for uh, having a nice car, but we will be condemned because we are not generous. Because a selfish heart reflects a self-dependence and a self-satisfaction, a heart that is not dependent on Jesus as Lord and Savior, but instead on all that we have. Likewise, we are not declared righteous and granted eternal life due to our generosity. But because of our declaration as Jesus is Lord and Savior, which moves our hearts to generosity. When we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, looked at the woman who uh, anointed Jesus' feet, Jesus responded to her and the shocked and confused Simon in Luke chapter 7 saying this, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. A changed and forgiven heart is moved to display love, and one of these ways is generosity and stewardship of that which we have been given. 
The urgency in understanding this is reaffirmed in the second half of what Abraham says now in verse 26. Besides all this, Abraham says, Between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You can picture the rich man standing on the very edge of this chasm that Abraham mentioned, staring across, realizing his fate is sealed. It's unlikely that this is going to be the physical reality that meets us when we are in heaven, that is in heaven and hell, but it serves to point out that after death, there is no adjustment of status. There is no redo. You can't fill out a form and say, I think you got it wrong. I need to be actually over there. It is permanent. As we previously mentioned, Lazarus' comfort in heaven is permanent and the rich man's torment is also forever. There is an urgency for us to learn how to be rich in this life because when it is over, it will be too late. This is the truth that the rich man gives himself over to in verse 27. We can imagine he pauses. And then he looks up and, and makes another request. Please, he says, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. We have not yet mentioned that this is the second time that he uses father, which for us means nothing, but for the Pharisees was a nod at their trust in their Jewish lineage to get them eternal life. Abraham's gentle but firm refusal is Jesus subtly saying, it's not going to work. Just because you are a Jewish leader, that doesn't mean anything. Please, the rich man says, I have five brothers. Send him so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. The rich man knows his life is lost, but he might be able to save his siblings. Abraham calmly counters, Jesus says, by replying, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the Old Testament, the story of God and His people and redemption. Let them hear that. But not satisfied, the rich man again says, No, please, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In the rich man's mind, if these siblings just get visited by another worldly presence, surely they will be saved and believed. Different scholars suggest that the man is saying, uh, asking that God make a way for Lazarus to visit uh, his siblings in a dream or a vision. And this makes it that much more impactful as Jesus finishes the story saying that Abraham replies, If they do not hear from Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, I will see your vision or dream and I'll raise you a dead guy. God could send someone back from the dead to live an entire life and spend it saying, I'm here from the dead. Believe. Listen. But it wouldn't make a difference. Because, Jesus is saying, if you don't get it from the Word of God, you will not get it at all. One commentator point out, pointed out that the rich man suffers from the same thing that so many uh, who observed Jesus at that time did. They wanted a sign to convince them. But they refused to hear His ultimate message of salvation, the revelation of Jesus Himself. 
And this is the same reality that persists today. God has given us His Word by which He might be known. And people choose to consistently ignore or pass and say it's not true. And they said, just, I'll sit here and wait until you give me a clear sign. God has given us a clear sign in His Word. And when you choose to believe, there has to be an aspect of true faith which changes how we live. Uh, the perfect verse for this, Hebrews chapter 11, that introduces that hall of fame of uh, by faith people. It starts by saying this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Faith must be central to one's belief, which means that a miracle will never cast the deciding vote. Ironically, the rich man's torment reveals to us than how we might be rich in eternity. We have been given all that we need God's Word. Which means that if, when you're here this morning, you're kind of in one of two places. First, if you are hearing this and you know that God's Word, you believe it as truth and you have faith, you are confident and you walk away with the assurance of eternal life. That your permanent status after death will be comfort and not anguish. You leave knowing that you have believed and that as a result you are saved. Don't leave yet. There's still more. If you're here this morning and you know that that's not you, that's also okay. That probably means that you're here and you're hearing this and you're still not sure about the whole Bible thing, the Jesus guy and this whole church thing. But it's okay. Because you have the same access to the Bible as every other person in this room does. But it means that you go home with something a little different. You go home choosing to look at this revelation from God, the Bible, and you ask yourself, what does this mean? And do I believe that this is just a book? Or is this the very Word of God given to us for salvation? Most of the people here have done the same thing. They examine God's Word on their own or somebody walked them through God's Word. For many of us here this morning, that's where we are. And so, like I said, we have a task before us. But it's a task that we hopefully face with joy. Our believing hearts that long for the permanent comfort of eternity should also be better at longing for now to know our Savior better. And we can only do that through the continued seeking out of His given revelation. It would be sad if we left from here and found ourselves one-upped by someone who wasn't even sure if they believed this word. If, if our weekly time spent looking at this Bible and discovering the truth that it has was, was one-upped by someone who thinks it's maybe just a good book to be read. We know it to be the very word of God and the source of how God would have us to live. And so my first challenge to us as we leave from here is that we would realize that to be rich in eternity, we have to continue a pursued life as we read God's Word. Our Awana people should know uh, that 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says that all Scripture is God-breathed, given out by God for us for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? 
so that the man and woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's given to us to continue to seek this out. Clear sign that we know Jesus as Lord is how we continue to cultivate a faithful life in this temporary time that we have been given. Which brings us back finally to how to be rich in this life. Just as the rich man's ignorant selfishness was a clear sign that he was moving towards eternal torment and hell, our generosity is a clear sign that we are moving towards being rich in eternity. How we steward our money and all that God has given us should be a clear sign of where our hearts are. This is not a lesson today on how to get rich. I'm sorry if you were waiting for 30 minutes for that punchline. But this is a lesson in how to function as individuals who have been blessed with much. Many of us here have been given by God more than we need and we have the luxury of choosing what we do with our excess. And this is where our choices need to reflect our eternal standing. In a very practical way, I mean, I believe that this means choosing to expose ourselves to the needs of those around us. Rather than driving by the gate every day, ignorant to the man sitting next to it, we give and we invest in that person's life so that they can pursue change. We seek out opportunities to be generous with what God has given us so that we might bless others. Now I, like all of us, know the reality of living in Chicago. I went to Moody Bible Institute and participated in and then watched the cycle that happens every single fall. You know the freshmen in two ways. One, they're wearing their ID a mile away from campus so that everyone knows their name. And two, they're not yet callous towards the homeless that are on the street as they walk by. They're still caring for those that they see in the street. They have not yet realized the hopelessness and the bitterness that plagues each one of our hearts as we live in this city and feel like we don't know what to do. Now, I don't have an answer. It's easy to think that people are going to take advantage. But that should not stop us from being generous and using what we have been given to help others. And so I think the only answer for us is that we go out from here and we pray something like this. God, your word makes it clear that I am to be a good steward of what you have given me. I'm committed to being generous with all that I have, but I don't know how to do it. Show me how you want me to be generous. And as we go out praying something like this, we then walk around choosing not to be ignorant. Choosing to see the needs that are around us and then continually asking, God, show me where the open doors are and show me where they're closed. Give me opportunities to be generous with what you had given me. And as we see those open doors, we go through them and we are generous with all that we have. I pray that as we go out from here today that we might seek God's word and that it would move us towards a greater generosity. Let's pray. Father, we admit that oftentimes our tendency is to choose ignorance. That we don't want to be exposed to the needs around us, and especially when it comes to being generous. 
But Father, I pray that you would change our minds and that we would begin to pray asking that you would move our hearts to be generous and that we might be able to use what you have given us to bless others. That we would learn how to be rich in this life, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.